Chapter 4 of George Boring and Tale of Cateridris. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Conover, Wyndham, Maine. George Boring, A Tale of Cateridris by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. Chapter 4. Swift is the flight of time whenever a man would fain lay hold of him. All created beings, from behemoth to butterfly, dread and fly, as best they may, that universal butcher, man. And as nothing is more carefully killed by the upper sort of mankind than time, how can he help making off for his life when anybody wants to catch him? Of course I am not of that upper sort, and make no pretense to be so. But time, perhaps, may be excused for thinking, having had such a very short turn at my clothes, that I belonged to the aristocracy. At any rate, while I drew, and rubbed, and dubbed, and made hieroglyphics, time was uneasily shifting and shuffling the lines of the hills, as a fever patient jerks and works the bedclothes. And worse than that, he was scurrying westward, frightened, no doubt, by the equinox at such a pace that I was scared by the huddling together of shadows. Awaking from a long, long dream, through which I had been working hard in laying the foundations of a thousand pounds hereafter, I felt the invisible damp of evening settling in the valleys. The sun, from over the sea, had still his hand on Cateridris, but very inferior head and height was gray in the sweep of his mantle. I threw my hair back, for an artist really should be picturesque and having no other beauty, must be firm to long hair. While it lasts, and then I shouted, George! Until the strata of the mountain, which dip and jag like veins of oak, began and sluggishly prolonged a slow zigzag of echoes. No counter-echo came to me. No ring of any sonorous voice made crag and precipice, and mountain vocal with the sound of, Bob! He must have gone back. What a fool I must be never to remember seeing him. He saw that I was full of rubbish, and he would not disturb me. He's gone back to the cross-pipes, no doubt, and yet it does not seem like him. To look for a pin in the bundle of hay would be a job of sense and wisdom rather than seek a thing so small as a very big man among the depth and height and breadth of river, shingle, stone, and rock, crag, precipice, and mountain. And so I doubled up my things, while the very noise they made in doubling flurried and alarmed me. And I thought it was not like George to leave me to find my way back all alone among the deep bogs and whirlpools and trackless tracts of crag. When I had got my fartle ready and was about to shoulder it, the sound of brisk short steps, set sharply among doubtful footing, struck my ear. Through the roar of the banks and stones that shook with the waterfall, and before I had time to ask, Who goes there? As in this solitude one might do, a slight, short man whom I knew by sight as a workman of the idea, named Evan Peters, was close to me and was swinging a slate hammer in one hand and bore in the other a five-foot staff. He seemed to be amazed at sight of me, but touched his hat with his staff and said, Good night, gentlemen, in Welsh, for the natives of this part are very polite. Good night, Evan, I answered in his own language, 
of which I had picked up a little. And he looked well pleased, and said in his English, For why, sir, did you leave your things in that place there? A bad man's come and steal them. It is very likely. Then he wished me good night again, and was gone, for he seemed to be in a dreadful hurry, before I had the sense to ask him what he meant about my things. But as his footfall died away, a sudden fear came over me. The things he meant must be George Burrings, I said to myself, and I dropped my own and set off, with my blood all tingling, for the place toward which he had jerked his staff. How long it took me to force my way among rugged rocks and stubs of oak I cannot tell, for every moment was an hour to me. But a streak of sunset glanced along the lonesome gorge and cast my shadow further than my voice would go, and by it I saw something long and slender against the scar of rock, and standing far in front of me. Toward this I ran as fast as ever my trembling legs would carry me for I knew too well that it must be the fishing-rod of George Boring. It was stuck in the ground, not carelessly, nor even in any hurry, but as a sportsman makes all snug, when for a time he leaves off casting. For instance, the end-fly was fixed in the lowest ring of the butt, and the slack of the line reeled up so that the collar lay close to the rod itself. Moreover, in such a rocky place, a bed to receive the spike could not have been found among some searching. For a while I was reassured. Most likely George found himself was near, perhaps in quest of blueberries, which abound at the foot of the shingles and are very delicious fruit, or of some rare fern to send his wife, who was one of the first in England to take much notice of them. And it shows what confidence I had in my friend's activity and strength that I never feared the likely chance of his falling from some precipice. But just as I began, with some impatience, for we were to have dined at the cross-pipes about sundown, five good, or very bad, miles away, and a brace of ducks was the order. Just as I began to shout, George, wherever have you got to? Leaping on a little rock, I saw a thing that stopped me. At the further side of this rock, and below my feet, was a fishing basket, and a half-pint mug nearly full of beer, and a crust of brown sweet bread of the hills, and a young white onion half cut through and a clasp knife open, a screw of salt, a slice of cheese, just dashed with goat's milk, which George was so fond of, but I disliked. There may have been a hard-boiled egg. At the sight of these things all my blood rushed to my head in such a manner that all my power to think was gone. I sat down on the rock where George must have sat while beginning his frugal luncheon, and I put my heels into the marks of his, and without knowing why, I began to sob like a child who has lost his mother. What train of reasoning went through my brain, if any passed in the obscurity, let metaphysicians or psychologists, as they call themselves, pretend to know. I only know that I kept on whispering, George is dead. Unless he had been killed, he never would have left his beer, so. I must have sat, making a fool of myself, a considerable time in this way, thinking of George's poor wife and children, and wondering what would become of them, instead of setting to work at once to know what was become of him. I took up a piece of cheese rind, showing a perfect impression of his fine front teeth, 
and I put it in my pocketbook as the last thing he had touched, and then I examined the place all around and knelt to look for footmarks, though the light was sadly waning. For the moment I discovered nothing of footsteps or other traces to frighten or to comfort me. A long, narrow channel, all of rock and stone and slaty stuff, sloped to the river's brink, which was not more than five yards distant. In this channel I saw no mark except that some of the smaller stones appeared to have been turned over. Then I looked at the river itself and saw a force of waters sliding smoothly into a rocky pool. If he had fallen in there, I said, he would have leaped out again in two seconds, or even if the force of the water had carried him down into the deep pool, he can swim like a duck. Of course he can. What river could ever drown you, George? Then I remembered how at Salop he used to swim the flooded Severn when most of us feared to approach the banks. And I knew that he could not be drowned, unless something first had stunned him. And after that I looked around and my heart was full of terror. It is murder, I cried aloud, though my voice among the rocks might well have brought a like fate upon me. As sure as I stand here and God is looking down upon me, this is a black murder. In what way I got back that night to Aberadir, I know not. All I remember is that the people would not come out of the houses to me, according to some superstition, which was not explained till morning, and being unable to go to bed, I took a blanket and lay down beneath the dry arch of the bridge, and the adir, as swiftly as a specter gliding, hushed me with a melancholy song. End chapter 4